Reading McCarthy. Reading McCarthy is a podcast devoted to the consideration and discussion of the works of one of our greatest American writers, Cormac McCarthy. Each episode will call upon different well-known Cormacian readers, scholars, and other experts to help us explore different works and various essential aspects of McCarthy's writing. My name is Scott Yarbrough, and I'll be your host for these forays into the deep wilds, dark roads, back alleys, and badlands of Cormac McCarthy. In some ways, I had this episode planned for a while. I knew I would have a lot of travel and a lot of professional obligations to my time this summer. And so for some time, I'd been contemplating going through the podcasts in order and having the first 15 or 20 guests or so and taking their favorite McCarthy novels and why that little component where I end the episode the first time I have someone on the podcast and kind of do a greatest hits compilation. And I had it all edited and prepped and ready to go other than adding some of the music and doing recording the introduction completely and the end of the episode materials completely. I thought it was all done and I left town last week to go on vacation. Well, a couple days into vacation and the emails started pouring in where people notified me that Cormac McCarthy had passed away. And so that changes the tenor of this a bit. So in some ways, I think this does serve as a bit of a tribute as all these various critics and scholars and aficionados and fans and readers weigh in on their favorite McCarthy novel. And I should let you know that in an upcoming podcast, I will have some of my familiar guests come on and will offer a bit of a tribute to Il Maestro and to his legacy and all that he's left behind. Like many of you out there, I suspect this hit me a little harder than I thought it would. I certainly wasn't happy when Johnny Cash died or other writers I revere or actors or musicians or whomever. But this is the first time I've almost felt like I've lost someone I knew. Although, to be clear, I've never, ever met Cormac McCarthy. It's interesting what kind of impact it's had on me, not just me, but many people who have reached out through email and Twitter, Reddit, and so on. So without much further ado, we'll move on into this episode. And again, there will be a later, more tribute-based episode to come. Now, most of these, I'm going to be proceeding in the order of which the people first appeared on the podcast. And my very first guest was the then president of the Corinth McCarthy Society. And he's also joined us again for Melville uh, discussion and a Blood Meridian panel and then also discussion of all the pretty horses. That is Dr. Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry is professor and chair of English at California State University, Bakersfield. Just stepped down as president of Cormac McCarthy Society, as I said. He's author of Understanding Cormac McCarthy from University of South Carolina Press. He's editor of the Cambridge Companion to Cormac McCarthy and Cambridge University Press's Cormac McCarthy in Context. His book, Unguessed Kinships, Naturalism and Geography of Hope in Cormac McCarthy, has just been released from the University of Alabama Press. And he's also written numerous journal articles on McCarthy and many other writers from the American Romantic tradition. He's also published a novel, Dogwood Crossing. And now on to Steve. 
Well, I'm going to defy your question a little bit there because it's a hard one. Um, but, and I'm going to give you two. Uh, my favorite book as just a reader like everyone else might be The Road for a very personal reason. I read The Road when my own son was 10 years old. So mm-hmm. I could identify that, uh, that experience very, very, uh, very, very deeply when early in the novel, the father says he knew only that the child was his warrant. If he is not the word of God, God never spoke. Uh, that spoke to me. Uh, and so it, it, that's the novel that makes me weep. Uh, as a scholar, as a person that likes to sort of unpack all of the many thematic, structural, formal, aesthetic dimensions, uh, it would have to be uh, Blood Meridian. I think those are both great choices. And so since you're the first guy, we'll let you cheat and come down with two of them. Another favorite of the show is Diane Luz, who's spoken uh, on the podcast about the area of of Knoxville and the Smoky Mountains, kind of before the Orchard Keeper. And she's spoken about the Orchard Keeper in Sutry and on other topics. And Diane Luce is a founding member and past president of the Cormac McCarthy Society. Together with Edwin Arnold, she edited two collections of articles in McCarthy. She's the author of Reading the World, Cormac McCarthy's Tennessee Period, published in 2009. Over the past decade, she's been writing a two-volume study based on archival research, McCarthy, McCarthy's writing life, the first volume of which was just published this year, Embracing Invocation, Cormac McCarthy's Writing Life from 1959 to 1974, University of South Carolina Press. I think it's exceptional. If you're interested in this aspect of McCarthy's work, you should pick it up. And she holds faculty emeritus status from Midlands Tech in Columbia, South Carolina, and is working on the second volume. Before we let you go, I have to ask you, what is your favorite work of McCarthy's and why? Our first guest, Steve Fry, couldn't narrow it down past three. And I think you were kind of wanting to hold it to two or three, too. But can you boil it down to one or is it a couple? <laughs> I can if you let me do a little bit of a, an introduction. <laughs> Absolutely. I think I could pretty well make a case for almost anything that McCarthy has written being a favorite novel. Maybe maybe not so much No Country for Old Men. I might put that sort of at the bottom. But McCarthy is such an even writer. He he doesn't do bad novels. And I would compare it with somebody like Toni Morrison, who at her best is just superb. But she has lesser novels as well. And, and right. there's, a I think, quite a different level between her best writing and and her average writing, which is still pretty superb anyway. Um, or someone like Louise Erdrich, who um, sure. who has one or two just brilliant novels, breathtaking novels like The Last Miracles of uh, The Last Reports of the Miracles at Little No Horse, and then many others that are that are of lesser merit. Or Hemingway, who wrote, you know, Across the River and Into the Trees. Yes. yes. You know, and that one. You always worry that's the one people are going to choose to focus on when they when they discover Hemingway. So 
having said that, um, that that's, I think, one of the things that makes it really difficult to choose just one McCarthy novel. But, um, and I have four that I always name, but I will narrow it down to Sutri, um, because I think that that may have been McCarthy's favorite. It certainly was the culmination of his work in the Tennessee period. Um, he worked for many, many years on it, honing it, rewriting it, revising it, getting it right. And I think it's a superb accomplishment, very intricately structured, um, so complex in its structure that it appears to some people not to have a structure or not to have a plot, but it is uh, very carefully structured around repeating uh, themes and image patterns, um, uh, the, the internal narrative rhymes of the plot, the beautiful language of it. I, I probably should not go on and on and, <laughs> and leave, leave something for your, for your podcast on Satri, but I think that one is my favorite. Well, I did do in graduate school a presentation in an American Lit class arguing that the professor had made a mistake, but not including that in his American novels of 20th century. And it informed him it was the, you know, the best novel written since World War II. Now, my, my appreciation has grown and moved around, but Sutri may well be my, my, like you guys, I can't, on a different day, it's a different book. There mm-hmm. are two or three that are never necessarily number one, but they're all significant. The next guest, Dr. Bill Hardwig, has spoken before about Southern Gothic, about Child of God. He's Associate Professor of English at University of Tennessee. His book, Upon Provincialism, Southern Literature and National Periodical Culture from 1870-1900, was published by UVA Press in 2013. He's edited critical editions of In the Tennessee Mountains by Mary Murphy and a work by Evelyn Scott, Background Tennessee, is co-editor of Susanna Ashton of Approaches, Teaching Works of Charles W. Chestnut in the MLA teaching series. He's written and published various essays, and McCarthy is currently working on a book-length study of McCarthy's fiction tentatively titled How Cormac Works, McCarthy Language and Style. He's creator of the website Literary Knox, and that's www.literaryknox.com, which is about the rich literary history of the city in which he lives and works, Knoxville, Tennessee. So we've we've covered then a lot of the horror and horrible stuff and horrific things that McCarthy loves to talk about here. With all this in mind, what is your favorite novel or work, I should say, by Cormac McCarthy, and why is it your favorite? Well, that actually, the way you talked about sort of moments of hope in otherwise bleak landscapes is sort of a good way to think about my favorite one, and it won't be obvious at the beginning, but um, I think the one I would select is Child of God. And the reason why is part of what I talked about earlier, that he says, Child of God, much like yourself, perhaps, and then you have to think as it becomes increasingly bleak, what that even means and how we can think about that. But what I really love about this book is how McCarthy renders the story of ugliness in such beautiful and delicate language. And that, for me, is the real draw of a lot of 
McCarthy's books. Because, you know, there's only, I mean, the, the amount of violence in these books can be overwhelming. And I find it interesting how he chooses to write about it, um, particularly in Child of God. So scholars have written about how language in his most famous book, The Road, doesn't seem to match the subject matter. So you sort of got this sympathetic, gentle language that talks about the extinction of the human race, right. cannibalization of babies, and the desperation of the very few people who remain. And so they talk about this incommensurability between the language and the subject matter. And I think that's kind of easy to see in the road because there's a sort of sentimental underbelly of that one, and you see more goodness, as you just mentioned but I think it's sort of a hallmark of all of McCarthy's fiction. Um, so what I really appreciate about Child of God is the narrative tenderness used to capture some of humanity's most ugly and violent tendencies. So if I could just sort of talk about one scene here really quickly. Um, there's a scene towards the end where Lex Lester has been injured and captured, and he escapes the hospital and sort of escapes this the people are trying to catch him by going into the caverns, the caves of, right. that he knows really well uh, in those mountains. But when he's in there, he escapes from the um, his captors, but he gets lost in the darkness. Right. And when he's sitting there in the darkness, he begins to believe he die. He will. He's going to die there in this darkness. And there's some really powerful moments there, where he thinks about his father who committed suicide. He cries a couple of times, and at one point he imagines. He hears some mice scuttling around, but he can't see them. And he imagines them nesting in the recesses of his skull after he, so he imagines himself dying there. Nobody knows he's there. His body disintegrates and then mice make a home out of his skull. So it's a pretty grotesque and morbid thing, but the description of it and is really interesting. So if I could just read one short quote, this is a description of Ballard sort of imagining these mice in his skull. His bones polished clean as eggshells, centipedes sleeping in their narrow, marrowed flutes, his ribs curling slender and whitely like a bone flower in the dark stone bowl. Wow. So it's almost poetic. You know, you could almost scan it like poetry and look for the assonance, the rhythm, the tempo. But it's about Lester, this deviant character um, who by this point is murdered and, um, and mutilated a lot of bodies. And so it's the way that the book gets, to, to my mind, to the frailty and preciousness of the human condition without ever directly saying it. And it's sort of represented instead at the level of language and maybe even the faith right. in the power and beauty of that language. So you got this strong, you see that in other ones too, but this strong testament to the beauty of language when there's very little beauty in the subject matter. Well, and it it stands alone, Diane Loose on a previous episode mentioned that he doesn't really do first person of the sort that Faulkner does to get into people's minds. But actually, Child of God is the one major work in the, the McCarthy corpus where he does use you know various first person points of view of all the people around Lester, if mm -hmm. not Lester's point of view, to get you know to show how he's ostracized and they don't see things with any kind of compassion or empathy. And I think the genius of the work is somewhat that as horrific and awful and banal and disgusting as Lester is, you do somehow feel some empathy for him by the end of the novel and with what's done to him. And in fact, I've enjoyed that so much, Bill. I hope you'll come back to talk about Child of God when we get to that a number of episodes down the road. 
I would be happy to. Would enjoy it. In past episodes, Nell Sullivan has joined us for conversations on Outer Dark and on McCarthy's women characters. Dr. Nell Sullivan grew up in Kentucky, earned a BA from Eng- in English from Vanderbilt University, earned her PhD in English from Rice University. She's currently professor of English at University of Houston downtown, where she teaches courses in American literature and the literature of the American South. Former editor of Cormac McCarthy Journal, she's published extensively on gender and class representation in McCarthy's novels. She's also published essays on Catherine Dunn, William Faulkner, and Nella Larson, among others. Her work has appeared in numerous essay collections and in such journals as Genre, Critique, the Southern Quarterly, Mississippi Quarterly, and African American Review. So now this is, as we start to wind down here, this is the one of the favorite parts of each episode for me. And that's to ask you, what is your favorite McCarthy book and why? Now we know this is the one that got you pulled into reading Cormac McCarthy and, and studying him. Is it your favorite or is that claimed by another title? Okay. So I, I don't like to make this kind of Sophie's choice here. Um, <laughs> I had a hard time narrowing it down. I would say I have a top three um, outer dark blood meridian in the road. And interestingly, you could make a case that they have versions of the same story of father son relations and, Huh. We progressively get to the point of an evolved father in the road where he does the right thing, but he doesn't in the other two. I can't really choose. I know it's kind of a cop out to include the road because for McCarthy purists, and that's like a kind of Johnny come lately text. I feel like I've been reading McCarthy long enough that no one's going to say I pulled that one out because that's the only one I read. Right. You've paid your dues. And I, I have to say, dues. it's certainly my favorite to teach it's so robust with things to talk about with students and to make them consider it. And the language is not off-putting in the way that it can be for various reasons with some of his other more challenging texts, either challenging from a complexity of language standpoint, challenging from a brutality of language standpoint. And the road is very different where that's concerned. So. Dr. Brian Gimza has joined us for discussions on Irish Catholic influences of McCarthy and McCarthy in the context of Southern literature. He is the author or editor of at least seven academic books in American literary and cultural history, and numerous book chapters, more than 30 published articles and reviews. His books include The Literary History, Irish Catholic Writers and the Invention of American South, which received the South Atlantic Modern Language Association Studies Award and features a lengthy chapter on McCarthy. He's also published Images of Depression-era Louisiana, the FSA photographs of Ben Sean, Russell Lee, Marion Post-Walcott, published 2017. He's recently worked with the Texas Tech Climate Center. And just out from Bloomsbury Press is his new book, Science and Literature and Cormac McCarthy's Expanding Worlds. Well, I think we've we've covered quite a bit of territory here, Brian, and, and we went down some paths that maybe I didn't really expect, So that's which is wonderful. It's always, every time I talk to you, I learn things. So with all this in mind, let me ask you the question I end up asking all my guests so far, which is, what's your favorite McCarthy novel and why? Or I should say work in case it's a screenplay or a play. 
What's your favorite McCarthy work and why? I'm sure uh, a lot of people just answer the last one I read. <laughs> Actually, they, they, the tendency is I can't boil it down to one, they say. They'll come up with two or three, and then they'll focus on one to talk about. Well, it's it's a favorite children scenario, and that's we should acknowledge that up front that McCarthy's imagination is so marvelous that he creates distinct children. Uh, and uh, <laughs> then it becomes very hard to say, this is a professional hazard for us, right? I'm sure you've had the classic airplane conversation where your seatmate says, oh, you, you teach literature. Um, what's your favorite book, right? <laughs> and you go, uh, <laughs> well, that's true. Although it seems like usually people want to talk to you about grammar uh, or they want to ask you if all your student papers are hurt by the fact that students text so much. <laughs> right. Those seem to be the conversations I have over and over again. Or then someone asked me about Agatha Christie. But Right. <laughs> well, they want to make sure that uh, ruination is general uh, based on <laughs> technology and general obtuseness in our time. Right. But to your question, I, I I do struggle to answer it like most people. I, I do think probably the road is is my favorite. And uh, the reason for that is simply that uh, it is the purity of the story. He takes he does something that uh, very few American writers can do. Uh, I actually believe that the book is in the realm of prophecy, uh, and I, I I really mean that. Uh, I think it is peering into a future and pushing the, the the limits of the human imagination that way. And there's a very stark warning there. But I also believe that in terms of what he's doing, that only our great writers have done. You think of somebody like, you know, Melville, who saw the Civil War coming and uh, let people know a certain way in works like Benito Sereno. He looked at the tension between the old world and the new world, and he said, here's what's on the, the horizon. And I look at the road uh, in, sim in a similar way. He does what Melville does. He reworks the most familiar narratives of culture, the really big narratives uh, about our creation, our destruction. He retells the, the, the story of Christianity in more familiar and human terms. This is one of Melville's kind of favorite uh, tricks that he played. He would take a familiar uh, uh, scene or story from the, the Bible, and he would recast it in a way that it initially was sort of defamiliarized and people wouldn't necessarily recognize it. Right. And so if we look at the road, how astonishing is it that someone can take the meta narrative of, of Christianity, the Trinity and recast it right. and make us feel it in our bones and, and do so in language that's so spare and haunting and beautiful that it actually takes the world apart in the way that he describes in the book. It's only through the world's destruction that we might see its creation. It's just an absolutely breathtaking work on every level. 
And I would point out, you know, that it it does something that very few writers can do, but it's doing it at every level. I mean, it's it's the beauty of the language. It's the way he he sets up the story. There's a purity in it that I, I almost feel like maybe it took him a lifetime as a writer to achieve it. When you, you think about the complexity of writing a novel of that length and stature with only two actual characters who are fully realized in it, we have the the wife for a few pages. We have the family at the end for a few pages, but it's 95% of it's the, the father and the son on that kind of epic quest for the sea. And it, it is an astounding work for sure. Our next guest was someone who was a real joy to have on and a little bit outside the kind of normal academic circles we we swim through and run in. And that was Dennis McCarthy, younger brother to the Cormac himself, who joined us for a conversation about his novel, The Gospel According to Billy the Kid, published by University of New Mexico Press, and an award-winning book. It's a native of Knoxville, Tennessee. Dennis McCarthy has been a park ranger, ecologist, speechwriter, editor-in-chief, professor, and attorney. For the listeners of this podcast saying themselves right now, I thought this was about the other McCarthy. I teased Dennis at the time of the podcast that after a lifetime of avoiding following his famous older brother's footsteps, he's now written this, this excellent novel. He's currently working on a second novel and lives with his wife and his beagle in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Now, my favorite Dennis McCarthy novel is The Gospel According to Billy the Kid. But one of the things we ask all our guests is, what's your favorite Cormac McCarthy novel and why? Can you focus on one or narrow it down to a few? My two favorite novels are Blood Meridian and Cetric. And I would probably, would be, it would be hard, actually probably hard for me to say. I had, I had said in the past when people asked me that question, I've said Cetri is my favorite. Part of it is because Cetri is the country I grew up in, sure. the town I grew up in, the characters I grew up with. And there's so many extraordinary things in that book. In fact, when the Cormac McCarthy Society published a collection on Cetri, I wrote the preface to it. And in that preface, I said, it's the greatest piece of prose poetry in the English language, or something to that effect. I don't remember exactly what I said, but that was, that was, that was the gist of it. Uh, I just, the language in it is beautiful. The conversation in it is beautiful. There are lines in there that just, I mean, they just blow me away. And for somebody who wasn't a part of it, you know, you say, what? <laughs> yeah. uh, the way it opens up is spectacular. Dear friend, you know, the first two words of it, dear friend. Right. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, yeah. that whole first paragraph is it's just a gorgeous piece of, of uh, poetry. Uh, there are lines, that, there's a, character in it of a, uh, a dobro player 
who's riding on a, on a skateboard, basically. You know, he has no legs and he sits on a skateboard and, right. and he's sitting on Market Square and, and uh, he's playing his dobro and, and Sutri walks by and he says, get him, get him Walter. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I can, I can hear that. That, that language, you know, Cormac had such an extraordinary ear for that language, for that conversation. And when in a lot of his novels, when he, I just feel like he had a, an ear for conversation that like nobody else has. Yes, very much so. Yeah, and it's just spectacular. I've read both, reread both books, Blood Meridian and uh, Sutri, uh, in the last few years. And at this point, it would be hard hard for me to say because there are there are things in Blood Meridian that are just so incredibly exquisite. There's a section in there about a grizzly carrying off a Delaware and the Delaware is going out and hunting for him. Right. It runs on for four or five pages and it's exhausting. Right. Uh, you know, there are famous passages like when the Comanches come up over the hill, you know, after, after they've attacked the wagon train, that's absolutely extraordinary. But, but this little section I haven't seen anybody talk about that section about when he goes after the Delawares, when the, when the Delawares go after the bear, trying to find uh, their their friend who they never find. But it's, you know, I say, you know, where in the world did that stuff come from? It really is sweet, you know, just amazing what he does with it. And so far, no one on the podcast has really been able to just narrow it down to one book. It's always two to three, and I'll talk about one. So. I think we're all pretty much in agreement that these are just works of genius in there. The one thing that really blows me away about Cormac is he's written, what, 11, 12 novels or so. And I don't know anyone else in English literature who's been able to produce 11 or 12 works of genius without a dud in there somewhere. Right. You know, like one that's not a dud, but it's just, you know, just really doesn't work all that well. Every book that Cormac wrote is just, it's a masterpiece yep. as far as I'm concerned. Now, of course, you know, you say, well, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, Dennis, you're his brother. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, you know, and, and there's certainly uh, a bias there. But I, I think you're right. I think obviously we all have our preferences for our, our favorite novels that he's written, but this is something Diane Luce brought up. He's never written a bad novel and or a weak one. And you really can't say that about Faulkner fable and the Reavers are, are certainly not at the same level. Oh. The earlier books, uh, you know, and uh, <laughs> Hemingway's across the river and into the trees is, has nothing. It can't compare remotely with his first three novels. Yeah. And here we have brother who, who's the road has so far, I think probably been, more people's favorite who've come on the podcast than anything else, which is astounding. It's here, you know, a novel he's written at that point in his career is shows just all that strength and grandeur that in moving into kind of different stylistic territory than he'd been in with those, those earlier two you mentioned. It's astounding how he sustains that level of artistic pitch throughout his career. Yeah. And how many people have, Cited the last paragraph of the road, for example. I think at least three million and twelve, and <laughs> that's about. We'll right. be up to thirteen yeah. here before the end of the discussion. I imagine three three million and thirteen. 
Stacy Peebles has joined us for discussions of Blood Meridian, The Gardener's Son, All the Pretty Horses. She is chair of the English program, director of film studies, and Marlene and David, David Grissom, professor of humanities at Center College in Danville, Kentucky. She's the author of Welcome to the Suck, narrating American soldiers' experience in Iraq, published 2011, and Cormac McCarthy in performance, page, stage, and screen, published 2017. She's editor of the collection Violence and Literature, and with Ben West, co-editor of the volume Approaches to Teaching the Works of Cormac McCarthy, which is forthcoming this year. She's published widely on the representation of contemporary war on McCarthy and has been editor of the Cormac McCarthy Journal since 2010. And she has just assumed the presidency of the Cormac McCarthy Society. So let me ask you this question, because I ask it to all our guests. What is your favorite McCarthy book and why? See, I like that question because um, my film students, you know, I, I teach both literature and film here at Center. My film students always like to ask me, what's your favorite movie? And I've just never landed on a particular one. I have about five, you know, and they kind of shift year to year. And so every year I hem and haw and I have my line about, I need, I just need to lie. So I have an answer, but with, with McCarthy and with just books in general, my answer has been the same since forever. And that's blood Meridian. I mean, so I'm, I, that's, that's the camp I fall into, you know, we differ, <laughs> you and I, <laughs> that's okay. No, that's not true. Blood Meridian is among the the upper echelon for me, as well. I'm I'm actually one of these people who has a hard time settling, and and intellectually, mm-hmm. Blood Meridian is the one that speaks to the most. Um, emotionally, you know, it's all the pretty horses mm-hmm. or Sutri, and, yeah. and sometimes the the road. The road's my favorite to teach. Right. Agreed. Yes. Yeah. The road teaches like a dream. It's that perfect sweet spot <laughs> of really affecting, it really draws you along, but in, you know, of incredible depth, uh, all these different ways you can tap it. Yeah. You know, Blood Meridian, um, when I first read that, I had read Pretty Horses um, in college, right? And then I read The Crossing. At that point, Cities of the Plain had not yet come out, right? The third Border Trilogy volume. And I was, uh, I was in, I was getting closer to my senior year and I had to write a senior thesis uh, as part of my undergraduate program. And I thought, well, I know I'll write my senior thesis on the three McCarthy's three Southwestern novels, as I kind of thought of them at that time, Blood Meridian, All the Pretty Horses and The Crossing. Now I hadn't read Blood Meridian yet, but I thought, well, I'll throw that in there. Then I'll have three, three chapters, like three short chapters, like that'll work great. Right. Um, (laughs) then I read blood reading and I thought, Oh my God, what am I going to do with this? Right. How do you, how do you write about it after having read it once? You know, and of course I went back and looked at it some more and that just made things worse, (laughs) you know, because there's just so much there. Right. But that's my favorite thing about it is it's, um, it's endlessly productive. It really is. You can reread it over and over again. I have a friend who's a Joyce scholar, and we wrote a, a book together. And part of the book was trying to define what do we mean by literature, something mm. being literary. His definition is it continuously rewards rereading. Yeah. Meaning your, your favorite mystery novel, after you know who done it, and you're a little bored with the character, is not necessarily something you can keep going back to over and over and over again mm. and get something new out of it every time. You might, it might be comfortable, like, you know, an old sweater, it mm. might be like comfort food. You've, you know, you've got to have your chili cheese fries on a <laughs> cold day or whatever your comfort food is. And I, I should add, that's probably not my comfort food, <laughs> but Blood Meridian, you can go back to it over and over and over again, maybe more than all the rest of them with possible exception of Sutri, which is equally dense mm. and complicated. Right, right. 
Now for another guest who's a little bit off our well-beaten path is Paulo Faria. He has translated a number of McCarthy's novels into Portuguese. He's native of Lisbon, Portugal, and he graduated from university with a degree in biology, but he's always had a passion for literature. He became a literary translator as a young man, and in 2016, he published his first novel, Strange War of Common Use. His third novel has just been published in Portugal. I ask this of all my guests, so what's your favorite uh, Cormac McCarthy novel, and why is it your favorite? Hey, I, I like Wonderican. Okay. Would, would be my choice. Because it was the first novel by him that I read. The lasting impression remains with me. And um, Truman Capote, in his Paris Review interview, he said something that uh, I think it's very important. I'll, I'll quote him. He says, The test of whether or not a writer has divined the natural shape of his story is just this. After reading it, can you imagine it differently? Or does mm. it silence your imagination and seem to you absolute and final? As an orange is final. Wow. As an orange is something nature has made just right. End quote. And that's what I feel about Bud Meridian. Bud Meridian is final. It, I cannot imagine it differently. It's as if it had been written in stone. Yeah. You know? Uh, and Cormac McCarthy just wrote it in paper. So that's my favorite novel by Cormac McCarthy, by far. Joining us to discuss the influence of William Faulkner on McCarthy and McCarthy's rejection of the anxiety of influence and his response to that was Dr. Jay Watson. Dr. Watson is a distinguished professor of English and Howry Professor of Faulkner Studies at University of Mississippi, where he also directs the annual Faulkner Yachnock Taffa Conference. He's author editor of 13 books, most recently a monograph, William Faulkner and the Faces of Modernity, and a co-edited collection, Faulkner and Slavery. One of the things I always ask everyone who came on here, and I guess I'll broaden this question. I always ask everyone, Jay, what's your favorite McCarthy novel? And I also want to ask you, what's your favorite Faulkner novel? And I'm going to make a stab at what I think it is between two novels. I'm going to come down on two. I think it is. I think it's either Absalom, Absalom, or Light in August. Is your one of those or both of those are your favorite Faulkner novels? I think I think the one that is the closest to a favorite Faulkner novel for me is Light in August. It does change, honestly. Kind of the stock market goes up and down you know, with those novels, and uh, sometimes you hit a little bit of diminishing returns with them, and then sometimes they're just absolutely reborn for you. But but I think Light in August, um, if we're not asking um, about what I think the best is, but just what my personal favorite is, I think that's probably the and one. And I I think I'm right there with you, and those are the same same two that, and there's a couple others that kind of weave their way in. And I do have affection for some of the lesser loved novels as well. And I guess we all do. And how about Cormac McCarthy? Can you, can you land on one? Do you need to work in two or three or what's your favorite Cormac so McCarthy novel? Where I'm lucky with McCarthy is that my favorite is the one I think is the best. And it is Blood Meridian. Wow. And I, I think by some measure that is my, I'm just in all of the novel and it's a complete just wonderful, pleasurable, awe-inspiring experience every time I go back yes. to it. 
So that's that's the one. Although if you want any kind of a caveat there, I can hedge a little bit since everybody else hedges. And I can say I I could probably make a case that the greatest single piece of writing that McCarthy did, at least for me, is um, section one of the crossing. Ah, yeah, it's Billy. It's Billy's story with the wolf, yeah, that's, which I think is that that's that's my favorite single little stretch of McCarthy writing. anywhere. Best hundred pages. I think he ever I'm really. The only word for it is offended that there are no excerpts of McCarthy showing up in literary anthologies. And when you get to the 1990s and later in the Norton and the Heath anthologies, to name a couple, it's pretty sparse and pretty tepid stuff. There's some good writers in there. I don't mean to disparage them. And I know that they've run out of space and it's all this thin paper and all these words and the anthologies already cost $8,000, whatever it is they're charging for them these days. But I've always felt you could excerpt that section of The Crossing as a standalone story and and promote it in these anthologies to give McCarthy his due in the Academy because those anthologies and uh, do affect their place in the canon probably more than they should. And sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, a writer's star rises and falls based on, on where they are. I mean, it certainly has hurt Hemingway that for a long time his family would not authorize more than one story in any mm-hmm. anthology. Um, Cause I guess they thought all the sophomore literature teachers were going to run out and say, you have to buy these three novels in addition to your anthology. Well, a lot of people teach at schools where they're not allowed to add additional texts. And if you're going to add a novel, it might end up being the great Gatsby or their eyes are watching God or something. So um, now that that stuff's coming into public domain, that'll help Hemingway right. a bit. But mm-hmm. with McCarthy, I've always wanted to see that, that opening section of the crossing published in that way. And I do think I agree with you. That's very remarkable as well. I just don't know how you write any better than that. No, I mean, I don't care who, I don't care who you are. I don't know how you could write any better than that. Absolutely. Another excellent guest who came from a little bit of a different background than many of our others is Marty Perola. Marty is an avid reader, sometimes critic, a book collector who graduated from Christian Brothers University of Memphis, Tennessee, then the Publishing Institute put on by University of Denver, earned his JD at University of Memphis in Tennessee. He has written two entries in McCarthy for Dictionary Literary Biography, and he's also been featured in exchanges of Peter Joseph in Cormac McCarthy's House, Reading McCarthy Without Walls, and The Wrong Reader's Guide to Cormac McCarthy, All the Pretty Horses which he edited and published in his first ebook form. He started the Cormac McCarthy website and has been a member of the society since its inception. Switching gears a little, Marty, tell me what's your favorite work by Cormac McCarthy and why? Uh, I'm going to go somewhere no one else has gone thus far in the podcast, I don't think. And say, at the moment, subject to change, <laughs> I think I think my favorite might be The Crossing. There, there are arguments that it's overwritten. There are arguments it's overdone, and he should have had an editor and blah, 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 blah. But I, I think it's just a phenomenal book. Um, the, the Wolf Trapper section at the beginning is, I, I think, really superior. Writing. It really is. And the first time I read that, it was like I'd been punched in the gut 
when I when I was done with that section, and I thought that it was almost a, a structural flaw of the book, sort of, because because now you're 120 pages in or so, and you're so emotionally wrecked that you have to start <laughs> over. <laughs> And you, you get that great sentence that begins the, the second chapter, doomed enterprises divide the lives of men between the then and the now or some some such. I don't remember exactly what it was. And and he does. He basically starts over a whole other, you know, book. And it ends the way it ends. It's another gut book. Right. There, there, there aren't very many writers who can do that two or three times in a book. I, you know, I'm... I'm and I, the, I, the the sort of nested stories and and that sort of thing, just kind of there's so much going on there that needs to be unpacked. But but I find the I find it very moving and and humanizing. Doomed enterprises divide lives forever into the then and the now is the beginning of the second part of the crossing. We're uh, we're looking at each other on zoom. I should tell listeners that's how I record these with people so that Marty can be in Memphis and I can be in Charleston, South Carolina. And his phone just started doing crazy things and showed his ceiling for a little while. And I wondered what is going on with Marty because <laughs> he didn't break stride on his voice, but he was getting a copy of the crossing <laughs> and looked that up. There's also that, yes. that section when he finds or buries, I guess it's where he finds the bones of, of his brother. And it says something like, gray sky gray day and that whole passage around that i just remember being remarkable and to me there's gut punch at the gut punch in the novel and even the the recurring motif of have a meal with a figure of wisdom i mm-hmm. think that goes all the way back to epic poetry and the odyssey and things like that and he's really doing something interesting with i i agree with you it's a modern masterpiece yeah. and then the, the the priest uh the priest's tail as it were right and, and his cat which <laughs> I, I read about the uh, i i came at that again later and kind of went this stuff with the cat is sort of hilarious yeah like <laughs> the cats are just sort of sitting there watching and they keep moving around and they <laughs> eat some i think and you know it 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 was so finely observed and it grounds it so that it's not just pure speculation. Right. Uh, sort of like, sort of like in all the pretty horses when, um, when Rollins asks Grady, if he wants some eggs with his pepper, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it, it's just to have, to have a book that take can take such metaphysical flight then be grounded by in in this case the cat you know stretching or turning over or whatever brings it back to the real right. and that that is it, it's he's a master at work yep so right now i would say it's the cross i i think it's a great answer and i agree with you that it is probably underrepresented in terms of people's interest in it and in reverence for it as well. It is, it's truly a remarkable novel. Part of the problem for anyone coming on the podcast is there are so many great ones to choose from. Mm-hmm. 
guest, Dr. Brian Vessio, joined us for previous discussions on McCarthy and faith and also on Sutri. He is currently professor and chair of English at High Point University in North Carolina. He's previously taught at University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, Missouri Southern State University, and DePaul University. He's authored the 2014 book, Reconstruction Literary Studies, an Informalist Approach, as well as numerous articles on American authors, including Mark Twain, William Faulkner, John Steinbeck, and Nathaniel West. He's published articles and works by McCarthy, including Sutri, Blood Meridian, and The Road. Let me ask you, Brian, if I could, what I ask all the guests that have come on the podcast, which is what's your favorite work by McCarthy and why? Well, I wish I had uh, an iconoclastic answer to this question, and I wish I could be a contrarian, but I can't Um, because there is no doubt in my mind that Blood Meridian is his best novel. It is the one, and I I think I I gave you the reason earlier when I said Judge Holden, who is at the heart of that novel, is simply unassimilable. Yeah. Um, He contains multitudes that will never be plumbed. Um, And it is the most, the most original, the most startlingly original, the most lastingly disturbing of all of McCarthy's works. It's the one that um, people will be puzzling over for centuries to come. And that's why it's my favorite. Dr. Michael Cruz joined us for a discussion of McCarthy's archives in the Whitliff Collection and is currently Associate Professor of English and Chair of the Department of English and Communication Studies at Regents University. He earned his PhD from Baylor and his BA and MA from University of Texas, El Paso. His book, Books Are Made Out of Books, A Guide to Corinne McCarthy's Literary Influences, was published by University of Texas Press in 2017. He also has a chapter in Stephen Fry's Cormac McCarthy in Context, published by University of Cambridge Press. Well, uh, now is one of the favorite parts of the podcast, which is where I always ask people, and I think you've already given us a spoiler on this, but that's okay. What's your favorite work by McCarthy and why? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sutri is my favorite um, by McCarthy. I think, you know, I think the general consensus is that Blood Meridian is his masterpiece. And I can see that because it is more, I think, coherent and polished. Um, it's, um, it works as a whole, right? Uh, as, a, as a kind of fully realized artistic vision, perhaps better than Sutri does. Sutri is a very heter- heterogeneous book and uh, episodic, and it's probably a little messy in places. And you can, if there's an interesting letter um, written to McCarthy um, from Albert Erskine, his editor at the time, practically begging him to make um, cuts in the book, to streamline it, um, to rein it in. So, you know, I think it's in some ways not as not as polished as Blood Meridian. I think it's maybe not as polished even as um, The Orchard Keeper, you know, or Child of God. But it's just it's I, I, I love it because, uh, for one thing, it's his funniest book. For sure. I, I, I actually wish that McCarthy would let his comic side <laughs> come to the fore um, more than he does. I mean, particularly, I, you know, the All the Pretty Horses has, has some some great comic moments in it. Sure. But things get pretty heavy after that. You know, the crossing is, um, you know, you don't, you don't go to the crossing when you want some laughs. No. And so I, I like that it's leavened by 
comedy um, and uh, brilliant comedy. Yes. So um, that's, that's part of the reason that I love it so much, but I love uh, the, just the, the dialogue, the crispness of the, of the dialogue, you know, you can hear those voices so clearly. And I think one of the other things that I really like about it personally is I, I find it to be far less pessimistic and gloomy mm. than, than probably most of McCarthy's work. And I, you know, I almost read it as a, a story to the degree that there's any kind of a story arc. I see it as a, a comic, as a, sure. a comedy, you know, the, the story arc of comedy rather than tragedy. You know, and I see it as a story of, of a man who um, is, is disenchanted with the, the world around him, in part because the world around him is so disenchanted, <laughs> I think. Sure. And uh, he's alienated from it. But that alienation is... Um, is I think in Sutri born out of a spiritual yearning for peace, for, you know, for wholeness and for redemption. So to me, it's the story arc is, is one of, of salvation. And, and you're watching a, a man stumble and fall and pick back up and stumble and fall and get back up. Um, but you can also trace um, a, a trajectory, a movement towards something like spiritual rebirth. And at the end of the, the novel, uh, you have uh, Sutri leaving, leaving McAnally flats mm. in, a, in a very real sense, rejecting um, he's, he's not only now rejected his, you know, his father's world, but I think he's also rejecting this, this world that he has inhabited uh, at the, at the margins of things. And uh, you have this wonderful moment, you know, where, um, there's a, a dead body back in the houseboat <laughs> and the, the water bearer, you know, bringing the water the car stopping without being hailed. You know, there's just this sense that there's, uh, you know, you, you have uh, Sutri leaving behind, um, you know, his, the, he, he carries his, his only talisman is the human heart within him, you know, and um, you know, there's this just sense that there's been a, a kind of rebirth, a kind of spiritual transformation uh, it, it may be that my own biases, you know, lead me to read it that way, but I can't help but read it that way. And that's very much how I read it as well. I think he's he's haunted by death yep. the entire novel, and his twin dies, is stillborn, and is his dark double who of yeah. his dead dark double throughout the novel. But at the end, he chooses to to live and to participate in life rather than just coast along. And, and I think there's yeah. so much to be said about that as we go. And I, I do think, I agree with you, it is a remarkable achievement and one of the ones that really landed me in thoroughly in his camp as well. Yeah. Author, actor, artist, auteur, musician, all-around troublemaker, Peter Joseph. Join us for talks on Sutri for his various works also, which include The Wrong Reader's Guide to Cormac McCarthy, All the Pretty Horses, Adventures in Reading Cormac McCarthy, Cormac McCarthy's House, Reading Cormac McCarthy Without Walls, Liberty Street, Encounters at Ground Zero, The Way the Trumpet, What One Man Said to Another, Talks of Richard Seltzer, and The Wounded River, which was New York Times notable book of 1993. His films include award-winning Liberty Street, Alive at Ground Zero, Many, many others, but also importantly, 
acting McCarthy the making Billy Bob Thornton's All the Pretty Horses. As a painter, his McCarthy-related exhibitions have been shown in Sweden, England, Australia, even Texas and Kentucky. Peter currently lectures on film for the Frick State Lectures at Nassau County Museum of Art on Long Island. And Peter, as we'll see toward the end of this podcast, hijacked the, the show for an episode and turn the interviewer's microphone around on me. So I probably should move on to a big question here, Peter. And when I had Jay Watson on the podcast, we talked about Faulkner and McCarthy. That was before your moratorium on no more Faulkner discussions. And I told him, or it may have been a different episode with someone else, but I've told the story before about the Sutri 25th anniversary conference where someone asked a panel of Faulknerians, who's more important, McCarthy or Faulkner? And when they came down with Faulkner, uh, I could see the hurt in your eyes. And my feeling has always been that I know the book that is your favorite. And I think you've given it away in your books as well. But I will ask you this when I ask all the guests on the podcast, what is your favorite McCarthy novel and why? I'm really impressed that you remembered that episode at that conference because it was driving me nuts that even Noel Polk who who gave the keynote I felt there's something about the way that he's talking about McCarthy that I don't think he's even read all of McCarthy I think he's still fundamentally a Faulknerian and there are all these Faulknerians running around and there was so much Faulkner and I kind of sort of knew the answer uh I think I think exactly the way I phrased it was something like is there uh, a novel that you would consider to be the best of McCarthy that you would hold up against what you consider to be the best of Faulkner. And not a single one, yeah, not a single one on the panel said yes. Yeah, I was disappointed, but I kind of, I more or less expected that. Well, you're right. Uh, I don't know how you figured it out, but it is such a, uh, it is such a, I love all the pretty horses and I love Child of God. I don't think of The Orchard Keeper as sort of new, raw, budding, um, beginning McCarthy. I think it's a masterpiece. I think Out of yeah. Dark also. I think Parts of the Crossing. Even No Country, which is not a favorite of mine, I think is is absolutely brilliant. But yeah, Sutri, that's the one. It always has been. That's the one that uh, Rick imposed upon me directly after he told me to read Blood Meridian. That came next, really. And I really related to that in a way that I've related to to few books. I have so many reasons why it's a favorite that uh, you probably, maybe if you do a panel on Sutri, you could in, invite me back to talk about some of them. But just, just to give you a couple, maybe a few things that perhaps uh, you haven't heard yet in some of the previous podcasts. For one thing, it's a great novel about a great city. Yeah. I'm a street eater. I'm a, I'm a city's person. I love few things better than to be walking the streets of a great city or even just a, an interesting smaller city. I love filming. I love photographing. I love writing. I love absorbing it into who I am and what I do. And I think that Suchry does for Knoxville what Ulysses does for Dublin. It's what Tropic of Cancer does for Paris and what really, as I was saying, a movable feast, which I think of as a novel, uh, does for Paris. Uh, there aren't that many great New York novels. Um, interestingly, uh, Tropic of Capricorn, another Henry Miller, uh, kind of does that for New York. But, you know, the title of the book is Suchry, and you get so much of Knoxville in it. And I think that everything in the book, 
has to be Satri because that's what it's called. It doesn't mm. it doesn't say the guy in the book is the title. It's the yeah. only applies to him. It's everything. And I think absolutely every detail in Satri applies to who he is and what he does and where he's going. And I think uh, critics are dead wrong who say that McCarthy doesn't give you the internal life of his characters. I think he gives it to you in every sentence of every one of the novels. And boy, is it true of Satri. Everywhere that he goes, everything that he describes, that's him. And Satri is also Harrogate. Satri is also the ragman. Suchri is also Ab Jones. Wesley Morgan, who you mentioned and who gave me that wonderful walk around for my, my second collection, and also as a fellow New Yorker. Wesley is, uh, is, is, from, is born in Albany, actually. Wow. Yeah. Um, so another Northeast who is, um, you know, enamored of, of McCarthy's South and the Southwest. He has a wonderful website called Searching for Suchri, in which he's tracked down so many of the names and places that are in the novel. In many cases, characters who were still alive when Paula Faria and I um, went down there with uh, Wesley. We met J-Bone. Paula shot pool with him. Yeah. We met Walt Clancy, who is still alive. And, you know, um, walking the streets of Knoxville, we met um, Big Frig, John Hannafin. Um, he didn't change their names. He didn't do what <laughs> Kerouac did, which is that he changed everyone's name to to, to protect himself uh, legally. Um, so there's a lot of the city in the novel, and I really appreciate that about it. But even more so, to get back to what you were saying originally about the virtuosity of the language, and Cormac's brother Dennis, who you've spoken to about his novel, The Gospel According to Billy the Kid, Dennis agrees with me that it really is one of, if not the greatest poem uh, in the language by an mm. American it really is every sentence of that novel is is exquisite work of poetry. And um, I would hold it up against uh, Leaves of Grass, the first edition, Walden, um, For Whom the Bell Tolls, uh, As I Lay Dying, the work of Wallace Stevens, Emily Dickinson. Uh, it's really just an absolute masterpiece of, of poetry in prose. And I love that about it. Another thing that I love about it is what I think of as its, as its overarching theme. It's something and I, I can relate to to my own life. Uh, I always think that what Suchri is saying to us is that above, beneath, beyond our day-to-day -day routines, our daily life, there are forces that if we don't get in touch with them, if we don't connect with them, then we are not ever truly authentically alive. Mm. But if we do get in touch with them, they could kill us. Wow. And I think you have both aspects of that equation on pretty much every page of Satri. And I think that's part of what gives it its extraordinary power. I just see that everywhere in the novel. Up next is a narrator of a number of McCarthy's audiobooks. Richard Poe has been a professional actor since 1970. When he left the Army, he was soon drafted into the course of William Ball's production of Oedipus Rex at American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. He played a variety of roles in many regional theaters before moving to New York in 1985. 
since appeared in 13 Broadway shows, including the 1988 Best Play Tony Award winning uh, M. Butterfly, the 1992 Best Play nominee Our Country's Good, 2006 Best Music Revival winner The Pajama Game, and the 2007 Best Play Revival winner Journey's End. Additionally, Richards had featured roles in several films, including Born on the Fourth of July, Presumed Innocent, Transamerica, Speechless, Burn at the Reading, and Delivery Man. On television, he's had recurring roles on several series, including Frasier, A Whole New Ball Game, and in several episodes of each of the Latter-day Star Trek series. Most interesting for our audience, Richard's prolific narrator of audiobooks, with over 100 titles to his credit, including these novels by Cormac McCarthy, Blood Meridian, The Crossing, and Sutri. His narration of Blood Meridian was nominated for an Audio Award, and he won the award in 2004 for his narration of John Steinbeck's East of Eden. He is married to Claudia Howard, and they live in Brooklyn, New York. Well, the question I always ask of every guest on the podcast is, what's your favorite McCarthy novel? I, hmm, that's a good one. I guess just because I had such fun reading it, Sutri was, it's a, it's a lesser one, but it, it uh, one that I, uh, I loved to live in. For the reasons aforementioned, uh, you know, the sort of the scuzzy nature of his his life there and uh, his attempt to live in the underworld. Mm. Um, so that's it. And I think there's a few of us who would argue it's not a lesser one. It may, you know, Blood Meridian may have the title, but Sutri's a contender. I think we would we would <laughs> yeah, say. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Now, the next guest is the most OG of all the OGs, as I uh, referred to Diane Luce as on an earlier episode, and that would be Rick Wallach, who joined us for discussions of his early works in McCarthy and also with our panel on Blood Meridian. Rick is one of the founders of the Cormac McCarthy Society and recently retired after some uh, several years teaching English at the University of Miami. He's senior editor of the Cormac McCarthy Society Casebook Series, co-editor of the two-volume collection on essays, Sacred Violence, as well as Myth, Legend, Dust, Critical Responses to Cormac McCarthy, co-editor with Linnea Chapman King, late James Welshland from novel to film, No Country for Old Men, written widely and extensively on numerous topics, literature, film, media, and contemporary music. He is completely over the moon for the Cowboy Junkies. I already know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it because I always ask all the guests their first time on the podcast, what is your favorite McCarthy novel? I think we've established it pretty well, and I think you've also explained very well why it is. But let's go ahead and say it for the record. Someone shows up with a uh, pneumatic animal slaughter gun in their hands and puts it in your head and says, which one is it? You say. Oh, it's it's Blood Meridian. Of course. It's it's Blood Meridian, and, and no country runs at a close second. Which is really interesting because when it first came out, you and Chip were not fond of it particularly. And I organized a panel within the month of it having been released. And a lot of our long-term colleagues in the Cormac McCarthy Society have heard the story so many times that they're going to, so they can fast forward by by a minute real quickly and skip it. I organized organized a panel with you uh, Edwin T. Arnold, Farrell Gorman, and myself on this new novel at this SAMLA, South Atlantic Modern Language Association Conference. I and remember the, it well. The yeah. audience, well, and at the very last second, you weren't able to attend because there was a hurricane coming, and unfortunately, you put your house ahead of my panel. Yeah. And 
we've we'll edit. That's why I remember it so well. Yeah, and you made you made up for it at other at later panels I put together, and I appreciate that. The other thing is, of course, our audience consisted of one person. Here I have the excellent Farrell Gorman. I have the two of the great founding members of all, of the Cormac McCarthy Society and all this early work. And he's got this new book out, and it's not getting. Uh, really gr- all great reviews and a lot of people's understanding of McCarthy came from that book. And you start hearing all this laconic, simple language, very influenced by him. And we know none of those things have been used to describe him before. And uh, so it is fascinating to me that it's so grown in your estimation. And it just shows people what reading, rereading, researching, digging in really does to someone. I And I don't know that I would have guessed it. I knew you esteemed it highly. I don't know if I would have guessed it's your your second favorite, though, so I find that really interesting and fascinating. Well, for many years, Sutri was my second favorite. And then, then, then lightning struck, and I wrote that uh, that that talk for the uh, American Literature Association, which was really a, a No Country and uh, uh, The Sun Also Rises, you know, the Hemingway McCarthy thing that was right. the theme of that of that meeting. And uh, in really, it was in researching and rereading no country for that paper that I found all the hidden treasures in it. Really, it you know. And you know what we can say regarding the novels of McCarthy, and you can't say this about Faulkner, who was very prolific, and you can't say about Hemingway, who has not published as many novels, who did not publish as many novels as McCarthy, is McCarthy has not written a bad novel. They're all good. And there he has written one god off. He has written an awful screenplay, though. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on that. Now, Brian Gibson tells me he's going to redeem it in our eyes. And and I to quote Hemingway, isn't it pretty to think so? I look forward to seeing yeah. what he's going to do. Brian's, <laughs> Brian's the smartest guy out there. So I am very fascinated to see where he'll go with it. But still. Our next guest, Lydia Cooper, joined us for a discussion of McCarthy and race. Dr. Cooper is a professor of American literature at Creighton University. Her specializations include Native American literature, the Western, Southwestern literature, and gender studies. And, of course, for this podcast, Cormac McCarthy. Her most recent book is Cormac McCarthy, A Complexity Theory of Literature, published by Manchester University Press. Other books include Masculinities and Literature of the American West, and No More Heroes, Narrative Perspective, Morality, and the Novels, those novels being particularly the works of Cormac McCarthy. And her work on McCarthy, other modern, contemporary American and Native American writers, appeared in numerous academic journals, such as Studies in the Novel, Studies in American Indian Literature, and the Interdisciplinary Studies in Literature and Environment. The shift gears radically. Here's the question I always ask all the guests their first time on the podcast, which is what's your favorite McCarthy novel and why? I think I know the answer, but let's hear what you say. Okay. So first of all, as I'm sure everyone answers, what a cruel question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the first three or four people just refused to even say one. They said, well, it's this and this and that. And I said, okay, but if it's one. But if it's yeah. one, if you had to pick. So here's the thing, right? You say, what's your favorite McCarthy novel? I'm going to say that my favorite changes based on what I'm reading and why in the moment. What do I think is the best McCarthy novel? Blood Meridian. Come yeah. on, why are we having this conversation? Yeah. But um, my current favorite novel is The Crossing. I 
we'll put this, I mean, you know, I just think the crossing in terms of its depiction of non-human species, in terms of its depiction of the natural world in a way that's not anthropomorphizing, but that gives such life and vitality and dignity to non-human world. It is one of the most beautiful books. And given everything on the news right now about climate change, climate disaster, ecosystem collapse, species decimation, it is very depressing to be alive right now in certain ways. And it is it's emotionally devastating to watch what we're doing to the world. And I keep going back to different passages that I have underlined so many times, so many times I can't even read them now. Now when you turn the page over, the other page is obscure. It's it's a a palimpsest. Yes. You know, there are a fair number of McCarthy fans who do not love the crossing and I don't get it. I loved all the pretty horses, but when the crossing came out, when I first got all the pretty horses, I knew Chip Arnold through Faulkner studies and, I knew he was a McCarthy guy and I'd been into McCarthy for a little while before all the pretty horses, but I, I I'd only read the two big ones. You know, I hadn't read everything else. They weren't available really until then. Yeah. And so I reached out to Chip and we started this kind of email correspondence that really went on until these kind of medical uh, realities interfered with his work. And I asked him about the crossing and his first response was it's, it's a modern masterpiece. Mm-hmm. And, and I agree with it. I think people really undervalue the crossing and it's always in rotation among my Top three or four as well, for sure. All the Pretty Horses was the first McCarthy novel I ever read. It changed my life. It was, All the Pretty Horses is always going to be one of my favorite books of all time. A lot of that is sentimental. I don't know that it's the best McCarthy novel, but in terms of McCarthy novels, I go back and reread when I need to. It's it's up there. You have one Meridian you don't reread because you need to. Frankly, yeah. no. although <laughs> you find yourself in life where you need to feel better about humanity, so yeah. you just crack open blood. But Meridian. you find yourself <laughs> compelled to reread it, don't you? Yes. Oh, blood Meridian, I've reread probably more than any other McCarthy novel. I think most of us have, right? But it's just because you have to. And finally, as prefaced earlier, we'll get to this little bit of self-aggrandizement from when Peter Joseph took over the show for an episode and hoist me by my own petard. And I'll tell you, for a shockingly long time, I thought a petard was some kind of strange Elizabethan clothing garment, like maybe a belt or a shoulder harness. And I did not realize it was a bomb until pretty far into things. Now, I didn't quite start the way that you generally start, so let me close the way that you do customarily close. What is your favorite work by Cormac McCarthy? It still has to be Sutry. Other books have grown and grown in estimation. I do love The Road, and I do love all the pretty horses and The Crossings also. I know The Crossings not one of your favorites. And Blood Meridian, year in and year out, grows in my estimation, and it's probably battling it out in the top three at this point, but Sutri is still the one where the the level of lyrical writing is as good as it is, and, and also philosophical complexity is just as good as it is in Blood Meridian. And at the same time, it's the one is still in a familiar universe and world. It's not dealing with the weirdness in a way that, say, um, Blood Meridian and Outer Dark do. And it's it's dealing with the world we still kind of recognize if you've had rough and tumble friends who are out to make trouble. You know that uh, 
the South is still dealing with the racial issues he deals with. And that, that's really the one place he really takes that on is in that novel. And also, uh, it is by far his funniest novel. Huh. And I think if there's one place where McCarthy has sold himself short a little is not letting his own wry sense of humor go further. You see a little bit in Orchard Keeper and a little bit in Child of God and a little bit, a lot in Sutry, a little bit in Blood Meridian, a little bit in the Border Trilogy. But uh, Sutry is the only place where he really just gives us his own head of steam. And I, I always regret that he hasn't done that a little bit more because it, huh. it's just Harrogate is one of the great fictional creations of all time. You know, there's a line in uh, Moby Dick uh, that I think is perfect for what happens when you encounter for the first time a, a masterpiece like Sutri. The great floodgates of the Wonder World swung open. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When you when you first read it, you think oh, this is an event. Yeah. You know, and you re- and you remember it as an event. Yeah, for sure. Thanks again to Thomas Fry, who composed, performed, produced a theme music and interludes for Reading McCarthy. The views of the host and his guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their home institutions or employers or the Corbett McCarthy Society. To contact me, please reach out to readingmccarthy at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter and sometimes Facebook, although I admit very rarely. The website is at readingmccarthy.buzzsprout.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can click on the little heart symbol at the top of the page to buy the show Cappuccino, or you can support us at www.patreon.com forward slash readingmccarthy.